Hello, and welcome to SWP TV, the broadcast channel of the Socialist Workers' Party. My name's Brian Richardson, and I'm the co-host for this special event entitled Black British Rebels. October in Britain is Black History Month. So around the country, schools, libraries, community organisations and local councils have been holding events which commemorate the contribution that black people have made to society. Black History Month has been a feature of the calendar in this country now for over 30 years, but it's not without controversy. Some politicians and local councils have tried to get rid of it altogether others to replace it with a so-called diversity agenda that does little to promote diversity and even less to promote racial equality. Other people have argued that Black History Month is tokenistic, focusing too much on the so-called three S's, Samaris, Samosas, Saris and Steel Bands, rather than a focus upon fighting against racism. Perhaps so, but surely that's better than nothing at all. This year, more than ever, a year that has seen a global pandemic and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, we should celebrate black history. And indeed, it's been a central demand of the resurgent Black Lives Matter movement. But a genuine call of the campaign of Black Lives Matter has been for decolonization, a demand that the history that we learn about is broader than a presentation of the abolition of slavery as the work of great white men such as William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln. Or alternatively, when we're told about struggle, it's invariably about the civil rights movement in the United States or Nelson Mandela in apartheid South Africa. We should, of course, celebrate those great struggles. They're fantastic examples of black history. But there's a wider hidden history of struggle on these shores, which is important to showcase as well. And that's why the theme of this event is Black British Rebels. I'm delighted to be sharing hosting duties with someone who's a playwright and writer. He's also a dear friend who contributed a brilliant chapter on one of those great struggles, the Stephen Lawrence family campaign, to the book Say It Loud, Marxism and the Fight Against Racism that I had the privilege of editing. Hassan Mohamed Ali, welcome to the broadcast. Hi, Brian. Glad to be here. And I should add, of course, that you're the editor of the pamphlet Black British Rebels Figures from Working Class History that lends its title to the meeting that we're broadcasting today, Hassan. Yes, that's right. It's just been republished. It's uh, by Bookmarks, which I was very glad to hear about. And I'm glad it's being republished in the wake of this immense Black Lives Matter uprising globally. Absolutely. Great timing. Absolutely. Now, Hassan, we're going to discuss the contribution of a number of pioneering figures with panellists, including Elizabeth Adolfo, Zach Cochran, Moira Samuels, and finally Talat Ahmed. Um, before we speak to our contributors, Hassan, though, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Um, Hassan, you originally wrote and published Black British Rebels back in 2012, I think it was, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. And it was it was uh, the culmination of a bit of research on my part um, as to these figures which I'd heard about 
that I didn't really know about. And I wanted to, to find out more about them. And the more I found out about these particular figures and their relationship with the British working class movement and British radical uh, movement at the time in which I live in, I, 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 I kind of realized that there was this hidden, as you said, the unbroken thread of British black rebels in the British working class movement through all the periods of history of the British working class, from its formation all the way up to today. And that seemed to me something quite unique and special and something to uh, kind of string together and have a look at that, that real range of figures who, who uh, not only part of the British working class movement, and radical political movement, but in some cases, uh, very prominent cases, were leaders in that movement mm -hmm. as activists and as intellectuals. So that's quite a story to tell. Yeah. And Hassan, why, why did you think it was particularly important to republish the pamphlet at this time? Well, some of the figures which I, I talk about in the pamphlet, not of all, all of whom we're going to cover tonight, but some of the figures on, uh, that I, I, I touched on in the pamphlet or described, gave a kind of plotted biography of, were that they led sections of very big mass working class movements in this country. For, for example, we're not going to talk about him tonight, but people will know of William Cuffey, who was the leader of the London Chartists, who was uh, that the, the bourgeois press used to call the London Chartist the black man and his party, which gives yeah. you an idea about how prominent he was and how much mm -hmm. they hated the, hated the fact that a black man was leading the London Chartist and he was on a radical wing of the London Chartist. Uh, so it seems to be that when we're talking about black history, we should also be talking about working class history. And if you like the links and the synthesis and the figures that bound those two traditions together. So yes, we are talking, we're in Black History Month. So we're talking about these black figures from history, but we, should, we need to understand their role that they played and sometimes a very prominent and decisive role that they played either as activists and or as intellectuals in the British working class movement. For me, you can't really understand British history unless you understand the combination between black history and working class history. That's mm -hmm. my that's my main contention, I guess. Mm -hmm. And given Hassan the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in the wake of the the murder of George Floyd back at the end of May, yeah. do you think there's a particular relevance that the pamphlet can play in the movement today well yes because i mean first foundationally we all need to know where we come from and the traditions in which we stand to be able to to organize organize ourselves now and look to the future mm -hmm. and we i think when you look to the past and you look to the particular traditions that we have in terms of british black rebels and the working class movement i think you can see maybe where leadership is emerging which is not the bourgeois leadership of boris johnson and the, those idiots at the top of society but how solidarity and unity is something that wells up organically from the bottom of society mm -hmm. uh, divide and rule penetrates down from the top of society but unity and solidarity always in the history that, that I've been, I tell through that pamphlet, you can tell that unity and solidarity is something that, that rises up from the bottom of society. And these figures give you glimpses, not just of what came before, but also what might um, transpire in the future. And mm -hmm. also, and we're going to talk about this with our first um, uh, speaker tonight, 
how much uh, mass movements in the past um, resemble in some ways what's happening around Black Lives Matter. When I when I saw the you know the second wave of Black Lives Matter in the wake of the murder uh, of George Floyd, it reminded me very much so of the mass movement in this country for the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's very, very similar, actually, if you read tales of small groups springing up in small towns and cities led by people who you don't know, who suddenly organize themselves and their people around them and the people in the town and they take a stand and they collect money and they boycott things like West Indian sugar, which they did in the anti-abolition movement. Um, you, they, um, you know, it reminded me very much of the kind of flowering, if you like, of protest around Black Lives Matter, not just here, but um, across the world. And not just not only around the question of the abolition of slavery, but around all the other big social political questions of the day, how it kind of generalized out from one campaign and began to link up with others for more radical and longer lasting change in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're so right, Hassan, that, that you know, the, the, the re re-emergence of Black Lives Matter has really been the, you know, the great shining hope of what has been a desperately dark and unsettling year. And the real challenge, obviously, is to transform what people have described as, uh, you know, an exhilarating moment into a movement for lasting change. And so learning from these great struggles is so hugely important, isn't it? Yes. I mean, just uh, lastly, the, the thing about the, uh, the the movement for the abolition of slavery in the 18th and 19th century was how determined and dogged they were and how deep rooted uh, the feeling was amongst working uh, people uh, in this country and black abolitionists and uh, uh, and obviously the whole um, vista of the anti of the slave uprisings, which we may mm-hmm. talk about later on. But how deep rooted it was, how committed people were and how, you know, even if, if you like, a movement uh, looks like it might disappear in one sense, it is driving itself deeper. And that's my feeling yeah. around black looking at Black Lives Matter movement is it's, it's not only broad, but it's also deep. And and I think that's something which I think the ruling class um, think it's just going to be a flash in a pan. That's not my feeling at all. Well, let's hope not. Hassan, let's bring in the first of our panellists, Elizabeth Adolfo, who's going to talk to you about uh, one of the great characters that you profile in uh, Black British Rebels. But before we speak to Elizabeth, let's start with a clip. And do you want to tell us what what, what that is, Hassan? Yes, uh, the clip is uh, uh, an actor uh, called Abdul Malik Badajana, and he's reading a uh, passage from... Uh, Alodar Equiano's famous slave narrative. So we're going to start with the actual words of uh, Equiano before we move into conversation with Elizabeth. The slave ship. The first object which saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast was the sea and a slave ship, which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. These filled me with astonishment which was soon converted into terror when I was carried on board. When I looked around the ship, I saw a multitude of black people of every description chained together, expressing dejection and sorrow. I no longer doubted of my fate and quite overpowered with horror and anguish, I fell motionless on the deck and fainted. 
I now saw myself deprived of all chance of returning to my native country. I was not long suffered to indulge my grief. I was soon put down under the decks, and there I received such a salutation in my nostrils as I had never experienced in my life. So that with the loathsomeness of the stench and crying together, I became so sick and low that I was not able to eat, nor had I the least desire to taste anything. In a little time after, amongst the poor chained men, I found some of my own nation, which in a small degree gave ease to my mind. I inquired of these what was to be done with us. They gave me to understand we were to be carried to these white people's country to work with them. So, there we have the words of Equiano and uh, Elizabeth Adofa, welcome to tonight's um, uh, presentation. And uh, Elizabeth is an anti-racist active, activist and a member of the SWP in South London. And uh, Elizabeth, what can you tell us about the man who wrote those words, uh, his beginnings and, uh, and what he was describing? Yeah, so... Oluwada Equiano can really be described as one of the major prominent figures in the UK for the abolitionist movement. He was born um, in 1745 in the area known as a Kingdom of Benin, which would now be considered as southern Nigeria. And he was enslaved at age 11 with his sister in a common tactic of kidnapping. And so it's when slave owners would wait for villagers, parents and the adults of the town to do work and come in and often take the young children from the town. Um, it would be there that he would be stripped of his given name, which is Equiano. And for most of his life, he actually was known under the name um, Gustavus Vassas, which was his slave name that he was given. And it would be the experiences that he would be put through and actually that would exemplify the true horrors of slavery. And I think it's always really important to remember that, that slavery was a horrendous act of mass violence and torture and abuse. And that's actually a credit to Equiano and his strength and actually the fact that he was able to read and write, that we are given really the first pictures of what life as a slave was like. Um, so we have the true accounts of um, the horrors of slavery. And he was actually sold multiple times, which again was very, very, very common. Um, because of this, he was one of the very few people to be able to travel what was called a middle passage. And so it was the trip from Africa through the Atlantic to the Caribbean, Americas, and back through to the United Kingdom. It would be there, actually, um, and his last slave master, Robert King, who would make him a deal. And a deal was that for £40, which in today's money would be around £5,000, he would be able to buy his own freedom. He was able to, of his own accord, trade fruits and other little goods. And he actually did earn enough money to buy his freedom. And so it was with this newfound freedom that he was um, settled in London and he began his journey and um, as a um, abolitionist um, and petitioned um, for the abolition of slavery. He began to start publishing his written works, most notably the interesting narrative of the life of Oluwada Equiano, which would account for his time in slavery. 
And he would write passages like we heard from the um, actor, but also passages like this that I'm going to read. The air soon became unfit for breathing from a variety of loathsome smells and brought on sickness amongst the slaves, of which many died. The wretched situation was made worse by the chains. The streaks of women, the groaning of dying created a scene of horror most unbelievable. Three desperate slaves tried to kill themselves by jumping overboard. Two drowned, the other was captured and beaten unmercifully. When I refused to eat, I too was beaten. And it was accounts like this that allowed for the masses to hear what slavery was actually like from slaves themselves. But it was far more than just an autobiography. It actually started with a petition to end slavery and it ended with a um, letter of, um, to the Queen about why slavery should be ended. And it was a great success. It was published over nine times during his lifetimes in several different languages with thousands of copies sold. And so he would actually travel up and down the country to towns such as Birmingham, um, Liverpool, giving speeches and writing letters to MPs. And so this would lead him to be one of the prominent founding members of a group called the Sons of Africa, a group that started off with 12 black men um, who campaigned for abolition. He'd also worked with very common and famous abolitionists such as Granville Sharp. But sadly, actually, Ecuiano never got to see the Act of Parliament passed in 1807 um, to end slavery or the Act in 1838 that ended slavery across the British colonies. But undoubtedly, um, it would be his work that challenged the public perception of the slave trade. And so by his aware, um, raising awareness of the horrors of the trade, he was actually able to change the attitudes um, and inspire, most importantly, people to join the abolitionist movement. And so that's why I'm really excited that we get to talk about him and celebrate him today because of his absolute huge contribution to the abolition movement. Well, thanks, Elizabeth. That's that's a great introduction to to Equiamo. I just wanted to dig deeper around a couple of the uh, the things that you touched upon. Uh, I mean, obviously, he was an incredibly uh, resilient and enterprising individual. Um, and he comes to London after he frees himself. He buys himself out of slavery, and he, like you say, he begins to write. What is the kind of um, what is he plugging into when he arrives in London and he begins writing and he begins talking firsthand? about um, what it's like to be kidnapped and enslaved and, and sold as, as, as goods as opposed to a human being. So what, what is it he's plugging himself into London? What's the kind of, you talk about the Sons of Africa, you talk about Granville Sharp, and that's the kind of radical wing of the abolitionist movement. What's, what's, what's going on in London and that London at that time? Well, it's a, it's a good question, because actually it's what he discovers in London that makes him such a successful abolitionist. He actually very early on understood that the key to um, freedom of slaves was rooting the campaign in a mass movement. And so he bases his campaigning on more than just giving first accounts. He actually saw that he could link the struggle between slavery to the wider poor majority of the country at that time. So if you think about England, 
at that time. We're talking a time just before mass industrialization. So there wasn't as what we would consider a working class established yet, but the conditions and the poverty amongst the majority of the white population were extremely harsh. You see, actually, it's commonly thought that actually whites and the black population had irreconcilable differences. But actually, it's the truth that actually the majority of whites saw themselves much more akin with the black and slave population than they did with the um, rich business owners who they worked for. Um, and so there was hope actually that in ending slavery and creating better conditions for black people that this would too actually improve conditions of the overall populations. And Equiano recognized this and he knew actually that slavery wasn't in the best interests of the masses and this is beyond just a moralistic argument, it actually just served a purpose of creating profit for the few wealthy um, enough to be able to afford um, to take part in the slave trade. And so with this, he was really able to speak to the masses of people in ways that were so persuasive that it mobilized the movement dramatically. Um, and it was this thinking, actually, that encouraged Ikoyano to work very closely with other white British radicals of the time, such as Thomas Hardy, who was the secretary of the London Correspondence Society. And so the LCS was a really revolutionary group. They wanted to see the reform of a complete reform, actually, of the political system. And they campaigned for equality um, for all. Um, they were very radical and they were inspired by mm. other movements, such as the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution. In fact, they posed such a threat to the government that they were outlawed by Parliament in 1799. Nakriana became a very active member of this political society and campaigned in favour of this universal suffrage. And it's through this united work of whites and blacks that gives you a better picture of the time at this um, of England at that moment. Because the truth is actually that slavery and the abolition of it can be accredited to to more than just um, upper class politicians like William Wilberforce. Actually, it was ordinary people along with slaves who fought and won this fight. For example, when the first slave petitions um, start in 1787, they launched one in Manchester, which originally had a population of 50,000, and already instantly they were able to get 10,700 signatures. Actually, it's believed among that time that it was one in five, um, one fifth of the population of black, uh, of white British men were actually signing anti-slavery petitions. And so it's really fascinating yeah. this time of period because actually black history as this meeting will show is bigger than just slavery. But when we do talk about slavery, we often forget the likes of Equiano and others. And actually it's the slaves, ex-slaves and white working class people who took agency over their lives and fought for their freedoms. And for that sort of radical approach and their ability to move masses, um, we should remember them always. But more importantly, we should use his story to inspire us to know that actually how we can fight and we can win for change because that change comes from below mm. it's an absolutely fascinating story well that is a fascinating story and it kind of lays the foundations i think very well of our, our, our of our journey this uh, this evening in the sense that you're, you're you're telling us something which is we're not told about in schools and colleges i know you know we know there's this big debate and the government is saying um uh uh, talking about outlawing critical race theory in British schools and universities, this kind of stuff. But no one tells you that the, the first mass movement in this country of, like you say, the, the, the beginnings of the working class was 
the, for the abolition of slavery. And uh, that's masses of ordinary men and, men and women organized and petitioned against slavery. That's a very, very different tale, isn't it, from the one that we're usually told about abolition in schools, for example. Absolutely. And do you think it's significant that Equiano gravitated to the the radical left of the of the, the political and uh, working class movement in terms of the London Correspondence Society? Why did you think it, that's where he kind of found his political home? Um, I think he found his political home there because he could see that's where the real change was going on. He could right. see that actually it was with revolutionaries such as Thomas that there was really a spark for change. And I think people gravitate naturally to real solutions. It wasn't just about improving the conditions of slaves for a few. It was about actually the complete abolition of slavery. And it was um, societies like the London Corresponding Society that were really forwarding this change and doing more than just writing to MPs um, and that beyond taking the argument beyond parliamentary politics and bringing it out into the streets and into the communities that were so attractive to Equiano because he was the able after he was freed to travel up and down the country and experience what life was really like. I think he was one of actually the first black people to travel to the Antarctic. So he was really fascinated by actually getting to the root um, of the discussion in communities where it mattered. Okay, so we're going to, to uh, unfortunately have to wrap up this, this part of the conversation, but if there's like a takeaway uh, uh, that you want viewers uh, to have about Equiano and his life and his struggles, what would that takeaway be? I think that takeaway would be that actually it's through um, strength and through resilience that change can really happen. And I think it's important to know that it was the likes of ex-slaves that fought for their own freedoms. Um, they did not wait for these freedoms to be handed to them. Um, they took it and that should give us confidence and it should radicalise us to take some of the similar approaches in fighting for the better world that we hope to see. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's absolutely fascinating. And thank you very much indeed for talking to us about our, our first subject or subject tonight. Uh, Thank you for Thank you. Uh, we're going to uh, move on now uh, to uh, our second uh, black British rebel. Again, someone uh, not born in this country, but born overseas in uh, colonial Trinidad. And we're going to talk about um, CLR James. Uh, uh, and the, I guess the link between Equiano and C.L.R. James is, as Elizabeth talked about, one of those major slave uprisings, which um, put the nail in the coffin of, uh, of, of slavery, uh, uh, was the uprising in San Domingo, led by the black slave general Toussaint Louverture. And C.L.R. James wrote an absolutely fantastic book about that slave uprising and so we're going to see a little clip of CLR James being uh, asked about uh, the black Jacobins being interviewed by the radical sociologist Stuart Hall. I mean people now talk about black Jacobins as an important historical book but really it was also a thesis about contemporary black politics. Wasn't it, it was and politics that is fundamental is always applicable to different periods of history 
because fundamental politics always has behind it the struggle of different classes. Different sections of the class can struggle and kill one another, but that is not much of a social event as when one social structure is fighting against another part of the social structure. Certain logical and historical things emerge which are applicable to similar periods a thousand years before or after. But what is the significance of Toussaint Louverture for you? I mean, how do you see the connection between those events in, in Haiti then and the 20th century politics? I have already said during the last few minutes that any great revolutionary event in history, from it you can always find principles and historical movement ideas that are complied to others. I was saying that before. Now, that is so in any great revolution, and the San Domingo Revolution was the first great revolution of black people. Now, when you consider the role that Africa was going to play in the world in the years to come, that then acquires a significance. Furthermore, it was a part of the French Revolution so that you have in that historical event a duality in which it takes part in the great revolutions is very important, the first was the British, and at the same time it points the finger to the revolutions among colonial peoples, so that that revolution is something that is worthy of consideration by every type of historian. If even you study the French Revolution, that is the extreme point of the French Revolution in Europe. But at the same time, it's the beginning of the colonial upheavals. So that is, a, from the point of view of the historian, a significant, in fact, a dominating feature of the study of history. Well, it's been a fantastic start, but please do keep sharing the details of this broadcast to your friends, your family, your workmates, and so on, so that more people can join us. Joining me now to discuss CLR James is Zach Cochran, a campaigner who, among other things, was formerly one of the national organisers of Love Music Hate Racism, in which role he helped to organise some fantastic interventions at the Notting Hill Carnival. As Hassan has told us, CLR James was born in 1901 in Trinidad and was brought up there. And he, in fact, he was educated at the most prestigious institution, the Queen's Royal College. But he did spend many years in Britain. In fact, he first came here in 1932 as a writer to assist his great friend, the cricketer Leary Constantine. And after traveling and working in numerous other countries, he spent the last nine years of his life right here in Brixton, South London, near where I live. So I'm definitely claiming him as, as one of ours. In fact, he lived above the flat of the radical black journal Race Today, which was edited by his nephew, another towering figure in the struggle for justice, uh, dark as how. Zach, welcome. Thank you, Brian. And can I begin by asking you this? Why would you say that CLR James's contribution to the understanding of the ending of slavery was so important? I want to just take up a point um, Elizabeth and Hass made about um, 
you know, in, in 2020, we're still talking about um, how colonised education is um, and the campaign to decolonise our, our curriculum. If you can go back to CLR James at the start of the 20th century in a colonised um, country of Trinidad, he was absolutely sick of the notion that um, oppressed people and particularly black people in the Caribbean were mere um, passive victims of the slave trade. Um, the dominant orthodoxy, um, which you know we still have to fight today, but certainly the dominant orthodoxy that he, he came up against was, as Elizabeth um, outlined in, in the last section, that um, the likes of William Wilberforce, philanthropists, um, politicians through their hard work, very top-down view, um, dogged campaigning, um, exposed to the public just this trade was 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 brutal and um, led to, to to the abolition and that Britain was some kind of gold standard of 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 ending the slave trade. And CLR James absolutely turns that on its head. Let me be clear that he is, pays absolute tribute to what Elizabeth has outlined, which is the um, non-conformists, millions of people in Britain, both white and black, who doggedly campaigned um, to, to, to end slavery. But he, he, he revolutionises the understanding of, of, um, the, of, of the ending of the slave trades by putting at the centre the slaves of San Domingo um, themselves. This, this was, was, was absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. um, led by Toussaint Louverture, um, a brilliant uh, military general, learned, um, been schooled in France, um, led and, and, and organised the, the black slaves. But what was absolutely crucial, and this is something that was mentioned in the clip, um, CLR James draws out, the interconnection, and this is something Hass mentioned with a, an unbroken thread. This was very much connected to the great French Revolution, the mm -hmm. liberty, fraternity, equality. The black slaves thought we want some of that too. Actually, thank you very much. And um, it was just like as, as Trotsky outlined with, with, with the Russian Revolution, how a, a backward country, um, workers can become very, very advanced, the nature of, of, of the capitalist. Uh, forces in the country. Um, in France, um, in, in San Domingo, being the jewel in the French colonial crown, um, hearing what was happening with the French Revolution, it, it, it propelled um, the slaves to um, take, take take agency and and and, and um, led, led to the, the brilliant revolution to to take control of the, the argument. A slogan: um, "Liberty or, or, or death." They were absolutely. Um, committed to, to, to achieving that. Mm. And I think, Zach, that, I mean, one of my favourite quotes, and I'm not going to get it absolutely right from CLR James, is when he talks about the, the Negro's history, the terminology of the time, is rich, inspiring, but unheard of. Uh, there's this concept, isn't it, that, you know, we're presented with the idea of the docile Negro that just accepts you know, his and or her fate. Whereas James was determined to show, wasn't he, that people fought, you know, as they were being stolen out of Africa, mm -hmm. they fought during the Middle Passage, they fought 
on the plantations. And he ends up saying that the only place where they didn't fight is in the pages of capitalist historians. And it was really his life's work to turn that around, wasn't it? So, Zach, tell us particularly about the Black Jacobins and why that's such an important text. I think we have to look at, you know, it was published in 1938. I think we have to look at the conditions with which that book was was being published. In 1934, we have uh, fascist um, Mussolini going into Abyssinia, which now now Ethiopia, under the guise, as, as, as Sunikai just mentioned, that this was about humanitarianism, that these people aren't capable of governing themselves, or when they do, they'll just be left with autocratic leaders. Um, we're here to liberate them, to, to bring uh, civilization to this country. This, this was very much uh, this idea of imperialist humanitarianism was, was, was the thing of the day in the 1930s. Um, I, I think why it was so crucial for CLR James to show actually, as, exactly as you've just outlined, that every step of the way from Africa to the Middle Passage to um, San Domingo and the Caribbean as well, slaves revolted and demanded their freedom on, on every step of, of, of that way. And it's an absolute, um, the Black Jacobins, it's, it's excavating that, that history that the capitalist historians have absolutely buried. Why is that so crucial, we have to say, is because at the time, just like Britain um, with Trinidad, they were saying to these countries, you're not ready for self-rule. CLR James points to, to St. Louverture, who signed treaties with France, who's, um, you had black deputies in the French parliament, um, who, you know, the first independent black, um, black state outside, outside of, of Africa. He said, we've been self-ruling since um, 1791, thank you very much. It gave confidence to the national liberation movements. Um, as CLR James mentioned at the end of that clip, um, this was the link that the, the Haitian Revolution was linked to the French Revolution, but it goes right the way on to the start of, of, of the movement for independence. And I, I think that one, another one of the things that really strikes me about James's writing, and he was really, I think, quite humble in the way that he was always prepared to reconsider and revise what he thought, because he wasn't just a writer, it, you know, like, Trotsky with the history of the Russian Revolution, he was aiming to intervene in the struggles of the day, wasn't he? And so, you know, Black Jacobins, yes, was about that particular history and struggle, but it was aimed at really assisting activists in the struggles of the 20th century, wasn't it? I, I think absolutely. Um, again, the, the 1930s, um, the Pan-African struggles, I, I mentioned, uh, Abyssinia, um, James launched with his good friend Padmore, um, the international African friends of, of Abyssinia. He was there to try and organise. He had absolute confidence um, in the working class ability from below to organise and to challenge the, the, the imperialist ploughs. In, in his time in London um, with the independent labor group. He was a part of the small Marxist group um, in that party. He made the struggles um, against colonialism ab absolutely central and, and, and argued with people to, to take that up. I think it's absolutely crucial if we look today um, at some of the, 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 the struggles with Black Lives Matters and 
the anti-war movement as, as well. James is one of the key figures, I, I, I'd, I'd argue, um, that um, brought about meaningful international solidarity in the, 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 the 20th century that we've, we've seen now so impressively with the Black Lives Matters, but also with the anti-war movements in, of the early 2000s as well. Mm-hmm. Briefly, Zach, we both mentioned Leon Trotsky, and in fact, James met with and had uh, conversations and debates with Trotsky, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, was very crucial. We often hear with Black Lives Matters today co- compared and contrasted with the civil rights movement. Um, what's very key in the end of the 1930s, um, through Trotsky's discussions with James on whether um, black self-determination should be supported through these these key discussions. They actually talked about launching an organization, um, the International African Service Bureau, which was already launched in in the UK, precisely to argue for, to organize the blacks and and to argue for the kind of civil rights that we then see um, so successfully in the 60s and, and now today in America. So he was heavily influenced with Trotsky. And what I want to say, even when he breaks with orthodox Trotskyism, he absolutely remains committed to um, the the ethos of, of Trotskyism, really, which is um, the absolute faith in the masses for below to, when they do enter the, the, the realm of history, to be absolutely crucial to change. And we need to remember that in the year of Black Lives Matters, actually, mass self-action of, of, of the working class is what's going to bring about meaningful change. and and resist the racist offensives that people are currently facing out in the States. Brilliant. Thanks, Zach. Hassan, I think you wanted to add a couple of points at this stage, didn't you? Let yes. me bring you back in. I just wanted to um, to build on what Zach's been saying and to, to say that the great thing about uh, C.R. James was that he was a, uh, a revolutionary in the kind of classic tradition. He was a polymath. In the sense that he was, as you say, he was a political activist. He, he did paid work as a political activist in America. He could hold his own with Leon Trotsky. Uh, he was uh, he was an essayist. He was a, a critic. If you read his book on um, Herman Melville's uh, great um, novel uh, Moby Dick, you'll see how great a uh, literary critic Celia uh, James was. Uh, he was, as Zach said, he was always he was always uh, uncomfortable near power. I think so. It was quite interesting that after uh, Trinidad won its independence, he goes back. Um, Silar James goes back to Trinidad, and he's kind of fated by his his student, who's now the the prime minister, Eric Williams, who wrote a very very important book, Capitalism mm. and Slavery, mm. and he picks a fight with Eric Williams because he can see that Eric Williams has his autocratic tendencies. So C.L.R. James sides with the trade unions against Eric Williams, his, his former student. Eric Williams then locks him up in eastern, uh, in Tunapuna, in his, in his house in just the east of Port of Spain, under house arrest, and then Silar James has to extricate himself from this and he ends up in Britain where, as you will know, Brian, he held court for many years uh, <laughs> uh, uh, above the uh, the, the uh, race of the day uh, headquarters and the amount of people that went up there to ask advice and to listen to CLR James to 
and to you can in that clip you had at the beginning that great breadth of history that he has mm. the way he links everything together like linking stars in a constellation you know he's a great historian broad historian classical historian in that sense and of course he's then becomes the kind of the advisory elder of the black radical movement of the 1980s mm. which is a very important black radical movement as i think we'll find out when we watch steve mcqueen's um uh programs which are mm. i think have been broadcast next month series of programs about darkest how in the 1980s and the mangrove restaurant and all those struggles so clr james all the way up to the end of his life he was always kind of there mm. and he always had this wonderful distrust of authority and that's what mm. i loved about him Absolutely, absolutely. Small Axe, by the way, is the name of the series of Steve McQueen films that people should check out on the BBC next month, which includes some fantastic films about the Mangrove Nine, the campaign that Darkest Hour was involved in, and so on. Absolutely, critically important. And he was, of course, as well, wasn't he? Many people know James for his writings about cricket, the fantastic book Beyond a Boundary. He, you know, he had a, a, a wonderful breadth of knowledge but I think as Zakas and yourself Hassan have quite rightly pointed out he's he himself said that the thing that he was most proud of was his contribution to the Marxist tradition yeah, yeah. um Hass I'm going to let you introduce the next um section as we move okay. on another yeah, Trinidadian it. figure I think yeah yeah yes I don't know why I mean it's nothing to do with me having Trinidadian roots sorry about that Brian <laughs> It's a complete coincidence, <laughs> uh, really. But yeah, I'm going to introduce on your behalf our, 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 our next luminary, really most extraordinary figure, uh, which is um, Claudia Jones. Uh, and we're going to talk about Claudia Jones and the black experience in London, in the UK, in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, uh, and Brian, you're going to be talking uh, to Moira Samuels about Claudia Jones. But um, let's introduce uh, Claudia uh, with a short film uh, where we can hear her combative speech. Ms. Jones, why aren't West Indians applying to come to this country in any numbers? Well, I would say that uh, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act has uh, acted as a deterrent against their coming. And in fact, that was the intention of the act, which uh, many of us considered a colour bar bill. Now, there was a good deal of ill feeling about this act when it was introduced. Has that ill feeling among West Indians died down? Uh, what is important to recognise now, it's not so much their feeling directed against the act as such, because they're responsible, the act is law, they're fighting to repeal it, but the consequences of the act, uh, namely uh, the fact that the population at large, because of the whole propaganda against the West Indians, uh, regard them as second-class citizens, and they themselves on the job in virtually every sphere of life find this difficulty uh, since the Immigration Act in terms of discrimination. As Hassan has said, I'm joined by Moira Samuels to discuss Claudia Jones. Moira is a prominent campaigner in Ladbroke Grove and Notting Hill and has played a leading role in the fight for justice for the community affected by the terrible Grenfell fire in 2017. So, Moira, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And can you tell us why do you find Claudia Jones so inspiring? I think that many of us are familiar with the iconic figure of Angela Davis, the black you know, a revolutionary, but few of us are familiar with 
the remarkable history of Claudia Jones. Um, you know, she's buried uh, to the left of Karl Marx at Highgate Cemetery. She was a black woman, a communist, uh, a talented speaker, a poet, a writer, and I think a very important black radical thinker. She was also recognized as being one of the founder um, members of, oh, of the Notting Hill Carnival. Um, so in just thinking about Claudia's life, going back to who she was and how she came to be here in London, um, she was born in 1915 in Trinidad. Her parents immigrated to New York um, for a better life. However, the 1929 uh, Wall Street crash meant that her family remained in poverty. Mm. And as a consequence of this poverty, Claudia developed TB, tu tuberculosis, um, because of the poor living conditions that they, that they occupied. Um, she managed to finish her education, um, despite the fact that her mother died of a heart attack at the very young age of 37. Mm -hmm. So she had quite a lot of um, health issues as well as social conditions. But she showed a talent for writing. She joined a drama um, society. And at the age of 21, she joined the youth wing, the youth section of the Young Communists, um, following her attraction to their defence of the Scottsboro Boys. I, Moira, can, can I just pause you there? Um, because you've mentioned the Scottsboro Boys, and unfortunately we don't have time to discuss this at any great length. But briefly, just to explain to our audience, the Scottsboro Boys were a, a group of nine black teenage boys who were falsely accused of the rape of two white women in Alabama in 1931. So this was the, the southern states in the midst of the, the Jim Crow system of segregation, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the, the most respectable organisations didn't want to touch this case, but the Communist Party supported the boys and both organized their legal defense and really you know through their international uh, legal defense and really forced the national association for the advancement of colored people to come in behind them didn't they and i think it, it's a measure of the the communist party's principled anti-racist attitude and activity at the time that they did this but it's it's also a measure of the racism of american society that it wasn't until 2013 that the last of the boys received a posthumous pardon, which meant that all of them had finally been either uh, had their convictions overturned or pardoned. So the case of the Scottsboro Boys is obviously an extraordinary story, which has been captured in literature, music and film, including, I remember, an excellent stage play at the Young Vic theatre here in London just a few years ago. So it's little wonder that people like Claudia were attracted to them. Uh, that's obviously a critically important part of the, the the story of the fight against racism in America, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so, so having joined the Communist Party, how did her story continue to unfold? She rose quite rapidly in the ranks, within the ranks of the Communist Party, becoming one of their leading 
um, theoreticians and a voice for anti-racism and anti-sexism. Um, you know, she was able to she tour the country and speak to crowds of 14,000 in Madison Square Gardens. Mm -hmm. She's she edited um, sections of the, the Daily Worker, and she was on the National Committee of the Communist Party USA. But she was credited with advancing a theory of um, black women's triple um, oppression, race, gender, and class. And in 1949, um, she published um, the most famous essay, I think most people are familiar with, an end to the neglect of the problem of Negro women. Um, and she argued in that, that actually women face discrimination because of their gender and because of their class. Mm -hmm. The black women were further disadvantaged because of race, and they were particularly disadvantaged because they were last hired and first fired. Mm -hmm. Also because they were paid low wages and they were mainly um, within um, low-wage industries like domestic work. So therefore, she argued that um, you know, if we work for the liberation of black women, it would benefit all women, and in actual fact, it would benefit all workers. Mm -hmm. You know, she also, I think, and in the light, I think, of Black Lives Matter, um, the recent Black Lives Matter movement. Claudia Jones was very, very powerful about actually black women taking the leadership in the emancipation of our, you know, um, and in the movement. Um, her politics of um, emancipation suggests that to free black women was to free all women, all colonized people and all working class people. And she argued very strongly that this would be done through socialism and through the destruction of race, class and gender. So she was really the pioneer of what we now describe as intersectional thought. Mm -hmm. And In, she was, um, sorry, we, we, uh, sorry, I interrupted you there, uh, Moira, because we, we need to to move on and look at the circumstances in which she came to Britain. And I have to say that as with CLR James, I'm going to claim her for Brixton because I know that the, the newspaper that she founded when she was based over here um, was founded in Brixton. So tell us more about the circumstances in which she came to Britain and, and what she did after her arrival. Well, in 1948, Claudia was first imprisoned for political ideas. She was charged with wanting to overthrow um, the US government um, with force and violence, sort of un-American activities. And she was arrested three times. And actually in 1951, while in prison, she had a heart attack. Um, and I think this kind of linked her poor health would be linked to what, you know, what happened to her later. Um, the state threatened to deport her, um, the American state threatened to deport her to Trinidad, but the British governor in Trinidad decided that she might be a bit too troublesome um, if she returned to Trinidad, and so she was deported to London. Right. And, and what, happened, what happened when London, she came here? Yes, in London, she came in 1955, mm -hmm. She was met with the glaring racism of landlords who 
you know, we're displaying signs, no blacks, no Irish and no dogs. Um, she also, um, you know, encountered the fact that actually West Indians um, and South Asians uh, were, were, had, were facing uh, employment color bar, they were being harassed, and they were being fitted up for crimes they didn't commit. And so Claudia founded the first black newspaper, as you said, the West Indian Gazette in 1957. I mean, she has this wonderful saying that a people without a voice are like lambs to the slaughter. Um, and, you know, she launched it in March 1958, 27 months after she arrived in London. Um, and the newspaper became one of the most defining forces in the Caribbean community. You know, it in the 1950s and 1960s, it covered um, issues like the independence movements, it covered anti-colonial struggles, it covered um, anti-apartheid struggles, um, it, but it also covered sports and culture, you know. And aside from that, Claudie was also involved, as the clip showed, in, um, in a campaign against the Racist Anti-Immigration Act, the 1962, and she was also involved in fighting for the release of Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Moira, most people who know anything about Claudia Jones uh, know that she played a leading role. Some argue was she was the founder of Notting Hill Carnival. Tell us about that, and also tell us why Carnival is still more important than ever, if you like. Well, you know, Claudia arrived in 1955, and at the time when the Windrush generation were arriving from the Caribbean, um, you know, and with the arrival of the Caribbean community, there was also the rise of the White Defence League. Um, you know, racial tensions really came to a head in Notting Hill Gate in 1958 with the race riot. And Claudia used her experience, her experience from Trinidad, her, ex uh, her experience of living in Harlem, where they already had Caribbean carnivals, uh, to start the first Caribbean carnival dance in January 1959, following these race rides. And they were both cultural and they were political, but she, or they were also there to raise funds for the legal, you know, um, aid of, of, of young people who were caught up, of pe people who were caught up um, in the race riots. Um, and in May, so this was January 1958, uh, 59, by May 1959, we have um, Kelsa Cochran um, murdered Nantigan carpenter murdered um, not far up from the road where I live. Um, and so she continues to have these carnivals, um, you know, year after year. Um, so this carnival, I think, in particular, has the most, I think the carnival has the most impact of putting Caribbean culture into British history. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, apparently 
um, Claudia had to really convince her comrades that actually this was really important, um, that it was just as important, the carnival dance, as a struggle for rights. Um, you know, in particular, people thought it was trivial that she was, they were having, you know, the beauty contests, um, you know, but, but Claudia was convinced, she believed that Caribbean cultural traditions would mitigate against the pain of racism, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it was a basis for, for acquiring free, uh, you know, Caribbean people's freedom, yeah. you know. And Moira, talking about, you know, the pain of racism, and you mentioned the murder of Kelso Cro Cochrane, and it's worth people knowing that, of course, uh, the Oswald Mosley uh, was active in the area. And indeed, I believe he stood in the general election that took place in that constituency the following year, precisely, or in, in 1959, was it? Precisely in order to try and exploit the racial tension in the hope that he could help drag it to the right. And it's a tribute, of course, to the community, black and white, that when Kelso Cochran was murdered, thousands of black and white people lined the street of his funeral um, cortege. And indeed, I believe there's a, his headstone talks about, um, it, it was paid for, wasn't it, by his white and black friends from the trade union movement, a very important example of unity even then. But Moira, I have to ask you this because it's been raised by Liz Wheatley, who is a, the branch secretary of Camden Unison. She says, we're claiming Claudia Jones in North London because um, it was at Camden Town Hall, I think where she organized a fundraising dance. And indeed those are, are, are original events that she organized that you described took place at St Pancras Town Hall, didn't they? And, and that of course raises the question about the origins of carnival, because some people would argue that yes, Claudia played something of a role, but that the real founder was a woman called Ruanne Lasley. What do you have to say about that? I think it's important to go back to those first dances that, that Claudia organized. You know, they had masqueraders, mm -hmm. they had steel pans, they had, um, you know, quite well-known steel pans like the, the um, you know, the Trinidadian All-Stars. They had um, Calypsonians like Sparrow um, and Lord Kitchener. Um, they had, you know, limbo dancing. They had masquerade creed. So they had all the traditions of carnival. But of course, they were in January, you know, mm -hmm. so people weren't outside. Um, and it is... I think historically, you know, there's been lots of debate and discussion within this community. But what we know that with Claudia's untimely death, you know, in 1964, that they um, um, ruined Laslett, a social worker um, in the area who was part of a free school in, 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 in Notting Hill here, um, a free school movement that actually was advocating for education and for advocating, as you can imagine, in, in, the, in a period of high racial tension to bring communities together. Mm. And after, Con, um, after Claudia's death, she invited Russ Henderson, um, who played at, at the Con, at St. Pancras, at the original um, 
um, carnival dance in 1959, she invited him to come to Notting Hill because she really wanted to have a street festival. Mm -hmm. And what happened, this, the street festival happened in August, um, you know, remembering the, the riots. And it was a street festival that where there were going to be brass band, Irish girl pipers, and it was going to involve, you know, communities from, from India, Ghana, you know, all sorts of communities who lived in, lived in the area. And Russ Henderson led, walked out with his pans playing and was followed by a crowd along Portobello Road and all the way up and round. Mm -hmm. And that's when the carnival began outside. So I think, you know, I think the, the traditions of carnival from the Caribbean um, were instituted by Claudia because they were broadcast by the BBC. They were held in all sorts of different places. Mm -hmm. But carnival going outside onto the streets, I think, is is down to not just Ruin Laslet, but actually, I think, to a whole community of Caribbean people in the area. Yeah. So really, I think we should celebrate the contribution of both Claudia Jones and mm -hmm. Joanne Laslett to Carnival. And I think one of the great things over the last few years, Moira, has been the, the way in which that, that political element and that sense of defiance has been brought back to Carnival. It's been, it's been a privilege, for example, to have been involved with the Love Music Hate Racism floats in association with Smokey Joe's Roadshow that Zach, for example, has played such a critical role in organising. And, and I think particularly with what's happened around Grenfell that you're so prominently involved in, you know, the idea of fighting, calling out racism and fighting injustice is so critically important, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, um, Carnival was, if we use Claudia, Claudia Jones's, you know, what she said about Carnival, it was, it was both political, economic, as well as cultural and was people using Caribbean culture as a form of affirmation. Yeah. And carnival is about, I think, people occupying a space, people who don't have control, controlling a space, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that is quite a dangerous place for yeah. lots of governments. Mm -hmm. And therefore carnival is both a joyous, occasion to remember the pain of racism but it's also for those in authorities a highly threatening event yeah um yeah no. thanks, thanks moira actually liz has added a little more she she said that they're definitely claiming claudia for north london and in fact there's a, a campaign to have the town hall renamed claudia Jones Hall. So we're going to have to do something down here in Brixton to, 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 to name one of the buildings here after as well. Thanks for that, Moira. That's been absolutely fantastic and fascinating stuff. Uh, we need to move on uh, now. And last but by no means least is one of the other great rebels that we want to talk about this evening. And some people might question why we've cited Jabin Desai as a black British rebel. After all, she was born in India and after moving to Tanzania, she finally came to Britain. And there, 
there is actually a very real debate in the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment about who qualifies as black and indeed about the terms that we should use to describe ourselves and our different communities. And um, it should be said, actually, that these aren't new arguments. I would argue this, that as you will hear, both from herself when we show a little clip in a moment, but also from Talat Ahmed, that Jabin Desai, diminutive though she was, is a giant figure from a period when the common experience of racism and perhaps more importantly, the united fight against our oppression encouraged people from different ethnicities, different religions and different countries to define themselves as politically black. So I'm therefore really pleased that, Hassan, you wrote about Jair Desai in Black British Rebels. And I'm delighted that we have Tala Ahmed with us today to discuss her. Uh, before we come on to that discussion, and I'll hand over to you for this, Hassan, let's just see and hear a little clip of the woman herself. was tears in my eyes that day you can say and it shake me people can do so many things if you get together I was fighting for good cause for the whole community I was not fighting only myself it established whole community, it was representing whole community, they are suffering this way. Our manager Beth Bethoy and all the time all around Joyaj Kartohoi. Ketamikyajaucho, toilet majaucho to get three minutes. The reason what we were fighting, we have achieved. The treatment with the staff has already changed. Don't you think it's a victory? That time we were getting 25 pounds, basically. While after this struggle, they are getting 65 pounds, basically. Don't you think it's a victory? Well, I'm very happy to um, include Jabin Desai in the Pantheon of Black British Rebels, her and her strike committee. That's a wonderful documentary. It sends shivers down my spine. 
Uh, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce to you uh, Tal Ahmed, who's a senior lecturer in South Asian history, a good friend of mine, and the author of a very good book, Mohandas Gandhi, Experiments in Civil Disobedience. So welcome, Tal. Hi there, Hassan. Okay, so let's start with what was Grumwicks? What was Grumwicks? What it was about? And why was it important? Or why did it become important? Well, I mean, I think as we saw in that clip, um, it's actually quite striking. Um, you know, the, one of the key things that stands out is how utterly defiant and courageous Jayabin Desai was, was um, along with the other workers at that particular factory. Um, Grumwicks is, it was a dispute that took place in 1976. It lasted for over a year um, in dispute. Um, Jayabin worked at this factory in Dollis Hill, um, Grumwicks, which is a photo processing plant. Um, and it's predominantly an Asian workforce, uh, particularly the um, Asian women who worked there experienced humiliation on a daily basis in terms of how their work patterns were, uh, were regulated. Um, at this factory, they had to work incredibly long hours. Overtime was not by choice, it was compulsory. Um, the pay that they had, um, was a total pittance. Um, and not only that, uh, but for those of you that, uh, that, uh, that couldn't follow the translation, their actual working pattern was that um, you know, they'd be standing for most of the time in this factory. They worked in rooms which had absolutely no windows, um, were quite airless. Um, in addition to that, they had um, glass around where they were working so that the factory foreman would be able to watch them like hawks, which they did for the entirety of, um, of, um, of their shifts, which were night shifts as well as um, day shifts. And this was because they wanted to make sure that these women were working nonstop. And when I say nonstop, I literally mean nonstop. Um, you know, that um, if, if a woman uh, wanted to have a break, if she wanted to go to the toilet, they had to ask permission off one of the foremen to be able to go. And even then they were timed. It had to be under three minutes. They were, if they went over by a second, they were going to be disciplined. Um, obviously, because this was a predominantly women's workforce, you had many women there um, who were pregnant at the time um, and they wanted to go and visit their doctors. They wanted to go to antenatal clinics. Again, they weren't permitted to do this. If they had sick relatives and they wanted to uh, take time off in order to take a relative to the doctors, again, they were not uh, allowed to do this. It's complete and utter humiliation for the women's women workers there. Um, and in many respects, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of workforce um, and the kind of factory conditions that uh, Boris and the Tories would like to take us back to. Um, and this yes sir, yes, sir, no sir regime, which they had at, um, at Grumwicks, um, is part of the reason why Jayabin Desai described that factory. She said, You're, you know, this is not a factory that's being run here to the manager. And by the way, the manager was an Anglo-Indian as well. Um, I just you know, dropped that in. Um, she said, you know, this isn't a factory, but this is a zoo. Um, but then she also retorted as, uh, you know, as sharp as anything that inside a zoo, there are lots of different species. There are monkeys who will just do whatever you want them to do, but there are also lions who will roar and we are going to roar. And that's exactly what happened um, because she was challenging and questioning um, so many of the 
the edicts that uh, existed there. She was sacked along with other people. Um, and, you know, being a, an Asian woman, the attitude was, oh, she'll just be quiet, she'll just go home. But of course, she didn't. She turned up the next day um, and established a picket line. She went there with placards that she'd made in her own living room and on a kitchen table. Um, and soon she was joined by others. Um, and within no time, the entire factory was was out was out on uh, was out on dispute. And I think this is really quite important because what the women were fighting for was obviously the unjust practices that existed inside of that factory. They wanted better pay, particularly, uh, but they also wanted trade union recognition. It was something that the factory owners were completely denying them, um, and they fought to get that union recognition. Um, and I think that you know, so like that particular dispute is incredibly important because um, and I think that, that that little clip demonstrates this as well. It's um, it's it's quite easy for, I think, um, particularly young people today to think that um, that these kind of um, disputes in workplaces uh, being led in the way that they were by someone as courageous as Jabin are just things of the past. Um, and um, as if somehow this belongs to a safe uh, historical period, that somehow these things can't exist again. I think the other thing that is quite fundamental to me about the Grumwick's dispute is, um, is how determined the opposition was. And I don't just mean the manager and the foreman, but particularly the opposition in terms of, um, of in terms of the state, the strike happened under a Labour government, um, and that in itself is a, is, is a whole story. Um, but one of the other things that um, that has come to light since the strike, of course, has been the unearthing of the covert operations that were taking place by uh, the Tory Party, by ministers. Um, by the media and the media at the time uh, conducted a total witch hunt um, and all kinds of rumors and untruths about the women that were involved in the strike about what was going on there etc but also uh, you had scenarios where you had Tory MPs who were organizing uh, postal distributions because they wanted to try and break the strike that's, right. that's how incredibly significant that strike was for the british trade union movement so, and and the far right as well the freedom association people like that trying to bring court injunctions i i think on on the on the strike i mean it was an absolutely incredible strike we've had a couple of comments on uh, on facebook and both of them kind of reflect the um the uh how much respect uh, Jebin Desai is is held in. So we've got Leila Hassan says, we are alliance, Mr. Manager, which was one of the famous quotes from uh, Mrs. Desai. And Leila says that Mrs. Desai was an amazing fighter and trade unionist. And we've got another comment from Balvinda Rana, who's a veteran of the Southall Youth Movement, who says, I got to know her quite well. I spent many mornings on the picket line as I was a full-time organiser at the time. She was a formidable woman. But let me move on to this, Talit. In one sense, in terms of this mass confrontation in the dying days of the Labour government pre-1979 and, and Margaret Thatcher, Jabin Desai and Grumwitz seemed the most unlikely um, person and struggled to break out onto the national stage. So how can you explain uh, how this kind of meteor kind of lit up the sky how did why Jabin decide why that workforce and why was it so why did it become so important for the trade union movement? 
I mean, again, it's uh, it is quite interesting to think back to this period, because, as I said, this is a predominantly Asian um, women's workforce. Um, and it's quite I think we need to pause to remember that when it comes to trade union support, his, you know, certainly in the post-war era, there had been, sadly, many struggles that had taken place um, of black and Asian workers, uh, which hadn't had the support of the trade union movement. You know, you had instances in um, in the 60s and in the early 70s where um, you had Asian and black workers wanting to go out on strike precisely for similar reasons as, as at Grumwick's in terms of poor pay and conditions. And they received very little support from their white um, counterparts at the at the um, at their plants or the trade union movement. In some awful scenarios, you had situations where um, the you know the black and Asian workers would be out on strike, but the white workers would break the strike and actually go in. And the trade union uh, leaders in the movement did very little about this. And there were also instances where there was um, overt racism towards uh, black and Asian workers. Grumwick's is the first dispute that really begins to challenge this, and not just challenge this, but was actually successful in challenging this, um, because the plight of the uh, Grumwick's women became, um, you know, it, it's, it's a word, phrase that's often repeat, uh, used these days, um, and it doesn't always apply in most instances, but it certainly did in this scenario. It became, of course, celebra for the trade union movement, happening as it did at the fag end of the Labour government, at a time when the Labour government, which had been elected to support the working class movement, but had started instituting policies which were following what the IMF wanted them to do and the World Bank was wanting them to do. Um, and this lesson was not being lost on other sections of the trade union movement. Well, let, let, and, me let me interrupt you there, Talit, because, of course, we can't really pass um, talking about Grumwicks without talking about the mass pickets and maybe particularly the visit of the Yorkshire miners onto the Grumwicks picket line. So can you can you sketch that out for us? Those mass pickets? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the most significant things was when they had a um, when they called for a mass picket lines um, in the summer of '77, and on this particular occasion, they were joined by thousands of Yorkshire miners, you know, brought by their local leader at the time, Arthur Scargill. Um, and you got a glimpse of that in that clip there, where you had trade union banners coming from all across the country. Um, you had um, sections of um, at the Labour Party in terms of ordinary Labour Party branches, trade union branches coming and support them. Um, and you know, when you look at, when you think about a strike like that, the sight of miners who were not black or Asian, they were not women, these were white male workers who traveled hundreds of miles down to North London. Um, and at the height, it was something like 20,000, 25,000 plus mass picketers that you had on that picket line defending the defending the women and again the state was absolutely brutal against this um you know you saw the row of coppers uh, the state threw absolutely everything at them and you know and the, the the police were not just there to try and prevent people from moving around they you know they 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 grabbed people they shoved them inside police vans they hit them over their heads etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but I think it was really 
incredible because the Labour Party officially was doing very little apart from paying lip service to the concerns of the women. It really showed the bankruptcy of Labour in government to actually do anything about this. But what it did also demonstrate was that the from the bottom up, when a call was given out for solidarity, an injury to one is an injury to all, then the better, you know, the better sections, those who understood the lessons of past struggles, answered that call, and that's why they travelled um, in their thousands to join shoulder to shoulder with this Asian women workforce, um, and that's what we saw in that clip there. Let, let's, I mean, one of the one of the things about Jabin Desai is the she's she's always very quotable, wasn't she? And she talked about the lack of support from the trade union bureaucrats, the leaders of the, the TUC, Trade Union Congress. And she put it this way, uh, is it support from the TUC is like honey on the elbow. You can see it, you can smell it, but you can never taste it. In other words, that notion of actually the TUC not playing their role in supporting the strike. And of course, that was that was fundamental, wasn't it, to the strike in real terms going down to defeat. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the women wanted to join Apex, which they did. Um, and that union at the time was quite a conservative union, uh, which also tells you something about when you think about the uh, trade union leadership. And again, they paid lip service. You know, they came out with fine phrases um, about um, how their cause was just. But when it actually came to uh, putting their money where their mouth was, this was sorely lacking from the official structures of the trade union movement. And this was a fundamental lesson that Jayabin Desai learned alongside learning that you had to appeal to ordinary workers up and down the country to come and support you because she understood that it had to be built from the bottom up in the same way that she had you know, initiated that strike and built that strike. It was done from the bottom up, not relying upon leaders from above to come and save the day. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we're got, we're got, we could talk all night about Jane just by deciding in Grunwick's because it's so fascinating. Our viewers, you should really find out more about the dispute. We can only kind of touch upon it. But it seems to me, Talat, that one of the, the, the final lessons of that dispute is something you touched on earlier, that in one sense, it transformed the nature of the British trade unions. The question of the role of black and Asian workers in the British trade unions had been, as you say, a big struggle for a, a number of decades. But, but Grunwick's kind of settled that question. And it seems to me the trade union movement that we have today in, in the way in which it puts anti-racism and uh, black workers' rights and so forth at the centre of it is, is can be in a greater part, part put down to how Jay Ben Desai and those strikers forced their cause onto the trade union agenda. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the strike was a watershed um, in terms of um, the question of race and class for the British trade union movement. No doubt about that in any shape. Um, and when you think about the shape of the working class, you know, its composition today in mm. terms of being black and white, unite and fight. Um, that is one of the greatest legacies of the, of the Grumwick strike. And it's also one of the greatest legacies of Jayabin Desai. I mean, I was a young teenager at the time and seeing that woman being interviewed on national TV. And as you say, you know, so like she had a great turn of phrase constantly. Yes. You know, one of the managers at the time said to her, um, you know, you're wearing a sari. You're not going to win wearing a sari. Why don't you wear a miniskirt, love? And she darted back. She said, Mrs. Gandhi, 
uh, wears a sari and she runs a country of 600 million people in India. She says, you can't even run a factory because we are going to be defiant. And I think that's, you know, for, for me, those are some of the most treasured memories that I will have of the dispute. And it's uh, not just a memory, but it's these are lessons in there for all of us that we would do well to remember today. Thanks, Tanner. I've got a final comment from James um, commenting on Facebook. Miners didn't just come from Yorkshire. They also came from Derbyshire. Uh, and uh, yeah, we should give the knowledge um, all those who came down and, and um, in solidarity with J.B. and Desai and the Grumwick Strikers. Well, thank you very much, Talit. Uh, I'm going to hand over to Brian for some uh, closing comments uh, for this evening. Brian, over to you. Well, a truly remarkable woman and an inspirational struggle, as you've both highlighted there. Thank you very much, Hassan. And thank you to all of our panellists, to Elizabeth, to Zach, to Moira, and to Talat. And a big thank you also to our backroom team, to Lewis, to Kevin and to Nathan, without whom this broadcast simply wouldn't be possible. And thank you also to all of you for tuning in. And please do share the details of this broadcast with your friends, your family, your workmates, because it's still going to be available via various streaming platforms, Facebook, YouTube, and so on. And Hassan's republished pamphlet, Black British Rebels, is a Bookmarks publication, and it can be purchased from Bookmarks, the independent socialist bookshop based in central London. If you happen to be in the capital, please do pop in and browse, or better still, buy some of the fantastic range of books, pamphlets, and other merchandise that Bookmarks has to offer. If you're not in London, and alternatively, then uh, check out, and you can see the details on the screen now, I hope, uh, check out the fantastic catalogue that Bookmarks has of literature and other things that are available for you to buy. Tears of a Clown, that was the brilliant front page of Socialist Worker a couple of weeks ago when Boris Johnson announced the latest calamitous attempts by the government to control coronavirus. The death and devastation that this pandemic is causing is no laughing matter, however, and that's why we need a fight back by ordinary working class people. In the week before this broadcast, we have seen the grotesque spectacle of over 300 Tory MPs trooping through the lobbies, MPs who, of course, are the beneficiaries of fat salaries, expenses and subsidised slap-up meals. We've seen them trooping through the lobbies and voting against putting food on the table of working-class children. And Marcus Rashford, the young black footballer who did so much to force him into a U-turn over the summer, has been accused of virtue signalling and lectured about the plight of single parents by these same Tory MPs. All of that really is proof that we're not all in it together and we need a fight back that puts people before profit. Every single week, Socialist Worker seeks to spread that message and to help organise that resistance. It's your paper, and therefore I make no apology for asking you to dig as deep as you can to make a donation to the Socialist Worker Appeal. 
Your support will help to ensure that its outstanding team of journalists is able to carry on writing and distributing Socialist Worker, both in print and online. So again, the details of how you can make your donation are on the screen right now. And finally, during this broadcast, you've heard about four great black rebels, but what is common to all of them is that they didn't stand alone. They were part of a movement. Today, we need a strong and combative working class movement more than ever. Socialist Workers' Party is playing its part in building that movement in every town, every city and every community. So if you agree with us, then I urge you to come and join the Socialist Workers' Party. Details of how you can do that are now on your screen. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay strong, stay active.